All right, so we are in Second Chronicles, chapter 13. Our topic tonight is the King Abijah. We, of course, want to say good evening to you. We're glad you're here. We had a fantastic day yesterday, didn't we? After a four-hour service and fellowship that lasted late into the evening, I assume that you are both blessed and tired. Tonight we have a really beautiful teaching, and it is supremely practical. We're only going to cover one chapter tonight, and uh, we have three goals for this chapter. You ready for them? The first goal, we want to glean what the Spirit is saying to our body in this text. That's, That's the biggest goal that we have tonight. And for that reason, there's going to be some deviation from what we might normally do. Second goal, we want you to understand the historical perspective that will better aid you in your entire Bible study. In other words, while we're covering what the Spirit clearly wants this body to know tonight, we don't want to ignore the key features that will help you interpret the rest of the Bible. Our third one, we want to make really good use of our time so that our emphasis is on application rather than some kind of quasi-endurance contest designed to uh, test your will tonight. We will not be teaching for four hours this evening. (laughs) We're going to jump into the text. We're going to do it without review because we're going to sprinkle our review throughout the text tonight. Does that sound good? Everything that's pertinent from the background things that we've covered... We will reiterate as we go through the text rather than do it up front while you zone out for 20 minutes and then get into the text. (laughs) Jennifer, it's your turn to read, baby. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Maaka, a daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went into battle with a force of 400,000 able fighting men, and Jeroboam drew up a battle line against him with 800,000 able troops. Abijah stood on Mount Zerim in the hill country of Ephraim and said, Jeroboam and all of Israel, listen to me. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt. Yet Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an official of Solomon, son of David, rebelled against his master. Some worthless scoundrel gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when he was young and indecisive and not strong enough to resist them. And now you plan to resist, resist the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David's descendants. You are indeed a vast army and have with you the golden calf that Jeroboam made to be your God. But you didn't drive out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and make priests of your own as people, peoples of the land do. Whoever come to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. As for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron, and the Levites assist them. Every morning and evening they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonially clean table, 
and light the lamps on the gold lampstands every evening. We are observing the requirements of the, of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. God is with us. He is our leader. His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you. Men of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. Now Jeroboam had sent troops around to the rear so that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush was behind him. <laughs> then Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked at both front and rear. Then they cried out to the Lord. The priests blew their trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. Hallelujah! At the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. The Israelites fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hands. Abijah and his men inflicted heavy losses on them, so that there were 500,000 casualties among Israel's able men. The men of Israel were subdued on that occasion, and the men of Judah were victorious because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took from him the towns of Bethel, Jashon, and Ephron with their surrounding villages. Jeroboam did not regain power during the time of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down and he died. But Abijah grew in strength. He married 14 wives and had 22 sons and Pretty 16 strong. daughters. The other events of Abijah's reigns, reign, what he did and what he said, are written in the annotations of the prophet Ido. Well, <laughs> I think we're going to pick up in chapter 13 in verse 1, and I want to caution you when we're reading. Uh, my wife does that expertly. I mean, I, I couldn't be any prouder of it. Pay attention to words that are singular and words that are plural. Uh, the king of Judah, when he is speaking to the king of Israel, uses the term gods, plural. When Jennifer read it, she mistakenly said God. Two calves that the southern king calls gods, but from the northern perspective, they considered it worshiping one god. Interesting. There were several things like that. She said lampstands. The text says lampstand, singular. Those are important details, and they're very, very easy to miss. I'll try to point them out as we go. It's not a big feature of our text tonight, but the Holy Spirit literally breathed onto the page every syllable that is here, and they're important. Those are big distinctions tonight and easy mistakes to make. So, well, as is our custom at this point, who in the body has some zeal like Jehu from yesterday and wants to pray at this point before we get into the first verse? Somebody in the room want to stand up and pray? Father, thank you, Lord God. Lord, thank you for your word, God, that you bring it to us tonight. Lord God, thank you for light the fire under our foot, Lord God. Lord, to receive your word and to put it into practice, Lord God. Father, we're asking, Lord, that this word, God, would impact us, Father. Lord God, we want to engage your word and we want it to engage us. Lord, open our minds, God, we might see the wonderful things in your law. Lord, we love you, God, we love what you're about to do tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Brother Lantonius, since you were so bold and got the prayer, why don't you go ahead and read verse 1 and verse 2 for us, and we'll begin. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Maka, a daughter of Uriel of Gideon. So listen, 
There are endless nights that we love to get into different names. We enjoy the controversy. I love the Word of God. I love studying it. But tonight is not a night that we're going to debate the names that are in the text that we just read. Some, in Places and Kings, it has a slightly different spelling than Micah. We want you to understand the overall narrative this evening. These issues are easily resolved when you look at genealogies and how they're written in the Hebrew Bible. Frequently, names are used multiple times, just like family trees tend to repeat something every two to three generations. We do, however, want to show you what this historical narrative looks like. We're going to do it with a slide because that makes it so much easier. Yeah. Wow. Oh, hello. Ah, we're working on it. There we go. <laughs> so thanks to yeah, David, who we've been studying about for months. His son Solomon, Rehoboam, who we studied uh, last week when we were together. Rehoboam and a woman named Micah or Micah produced Abijah. Now, you guys remember the story about Jeroboam. We went back into Kings. Yep. His father was Nebai, and Jeroboam was a servant of Solomon who broke away, and according to the word of the Lord, events that he caused to happen started a rebellion. We are now at a place in the text where we have two kingships, one that is under Jeroboam and one that is under Abijah. So when you see different names used in the text, just remember we're talking about David, Solomon, his grandson, now his great-grandson. Make sense? Yes. yes. Take a look at verse 3 together. Linton, will you read it for us? Read 2 again and then 3 because we missed a part of verse 2. There was war between yeah. Abijah and Jeroboam. Mm. Abijah went into battle with a force of 400,000 able-fighting men. And Jeroboam drew up battle lines against them with 800,000 able troops. Man, these numbers are staggering, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. That's something like 12, 1.2 million men going into battle at the same time. There are rarely modern battles that contain these numbers of troops. Abijah is going to war against Jeroboam. This is the southern kingdom, and they're going to civil war with the northern kingdom, and they are outnumbered two to one. The men of the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is, they are outnumbered two to one. For, for every man they had, they had to take on two men. This is so much like the kingdom of God. If God is with you, Usually you are outnumbered two to one, and the battles look like they are very staggering when they're coming against you, but this is the case. I want to hand out a few passages on this topic. Paul, you get Deuteronomy 21 through 4. Nick Rosales, you get Isaiah 31, 1 through 2. Brenton, you get 2 Chronicles 20, 12 through 13. Rob, nope, that's it. Three scriptures. Deuteronomy 20, 1 through 4. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. The who? The priest. The priest. That's interesting. Keep going. He shall say, Hear, O Israel. Today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. You know, before any of these battles ever occurred, right after they get into Egypt, God tells them that this is going to happen. 
This ought to be put into their minds that this is going to be the normal situation if they're going to follow the Lord and His commands. This is the normal situation for men of God. This is not something extraordinary. This is not a freak accident. This is the normal situation to be outnumbered and outmanned. Men of God are always the minority, and we always face problems that are bigger than us and beyond our perceivable resources. We always are being led by God into what we cannot see, but we know He's leading us, and it puts us in odds that are insurmountable. It looks like it's impossible, impassable, but this is the norm. Now notice the Torah anticipated this, and what does it do? It tells you before you get into the battle that you're going to have to do one thing. What's that? You're going to have to put down fear. The Torah anticipates that the one thing that's going to rise up in you when you face a battle anytime you're doing the Lord's will is that fear might rise up. You have to put it down. It tells you to put down fear, insecurity, cowardness, and replace them with a demonstrable trust in the Lord. That is something it tells you beforehand because your mind has to be made up before you get into the battle. Otherwise, fear will creep in and it could cripple you. The other thing that must be gleaned from this passage is that nothing happens until who comes forward first? The priest. Amen. Thank God that nothing happens until the priest comes forward first. Aren't you happy you have some priests in this house? I mean, the odds look like they're against you, and yet the priests are the one that stand up, and we get to follow. This also tells us that we cannot attribute a battle to the Lord. That he has not directed. Are you following with that? This is not a battle that God has directed until they see the priests step forward and go first. Amen. If If you are in a perceived battle in your life, if you don't see the priests rising up first for you in the struggle, if you're not behind them in the battle, if you're not in unity with the priests in the battle, then it's probably not a battle for the Lord. This is probably a battle that you created by your own circumstance, by your own lack of response. And you have to really look and see, where are my priests aligned with this? The silliest examples of this are praying for God's favor in a sporting event. I mean, (laughs) what, what does God have to do with your idolatrous sporting event? The most egregious examples of this are when you're on the side of a battle that God is not on invoking his name and that's more what we're going to be talking about tonight um we want to get on god's side of things who had isaiah 31 1 through 2 isaiah 31 1 through 2 what are those who go down to egypt for help who rely on horses whose trust is a multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen but do not look to the holy one of israel or seek help from the lord yet he is too wise and can bring disaster he does not take back his word. He will rise up against the wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. Man, there's some pertinent parts of that text, and we're going to leave it on the screen right there while we talk about it. Christians get themselves into trouble often, and sometimes they end up dead from it. It's because they haven't properly sought the Holy One of Israel to see if they're on the right side of the battle or if they should be in the battle at all. Some examples of that that we won't go into, but you should remember. Think on Jehoshaphat. He allied with Ahab. He almost lost his life over that. He's not supposed to be in that battle at all. And so he gets shot with an arrow. 
You know, I mean, he's crying out for help and he, he gets delivered and that's a mercy, but he shouldn't have been there at all. You know, a lot of heads are bouncing up and down. I bet you have been Jehoshaphat many times in that scenario. Think on Sunday sermon about Azahiah. He allied with Joram and he lost his life. See, all of these conflicts have something in common. It's not the good people versus the bad people. Nobody is completely right in any of these conflicts. But God is always right. These are battles that are taking place within the community of God. You cannot assume that because somebody calls themselves a Christian or that because you've been hanging out with them for years that they're on the right side of God in the stand that they're taking. You're going to have to seek the Holy One of Israel. Proverbs 14.12 says it this way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Did you think that was talking to lost people? Because it's, it's written to saved people. It's written to people that have a copy of the Word. It's written to people that are in the theocracy of Israel. Your natural inclinations are still not right. What you think the Word says about a subject may not be right. How many times are you sure you found the answer to a question and years later you realize there are three or four scriptures on the topic and you only found one of them? Oh yeah, that's, that's a normal part of immaturity. And all of us are seeking to become mature. But I really want you to look at the last few words in that passage on the screen. Against those who help evildoers. The Spirit of God is clearly directing this body to examine your alliances and get on the right side of God in every perceived conflict. You think of an evildoer as an evil person, but which one of you has not done evil things? See, the point is not that there's two classes of people and you get on the right side of one class of people, your denomination, your church, your whatever. The point is, is that all men do evil and you cannot help them when they're doing evil. I'm thinking specifically of dissident factions within this church. Those that are on the wrong side of God's word, they are on the wrong side of God's leadership, and you help them. This cannot continue. It it simply can't. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 12. All right, saints. Somebody say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Jehoshaphat here gets it right. He made many mistakes in the past. We just cited an area where he had previously failed. We are not just going to hammer on what you're doing wrong tonight. We're going to teach you how to do it right because I want to succeed. I know you do. Jehoshaphat gets this one right. He acknowledges that he doesn't know what to do. Saints, that's a fantastic first step when you're not sure what the next move should be. You don't know whether or not something is evil or righteous. Acknowledging that you don't know what to do and crying out to the Father. He then focuses on God's honor and then takes his stand in the position, the physical locality that God had dictated, which is the temple of the Lord. This is when we can say that the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. When we said, yeah, Lord, 
I, I have no idea what to do. My own opinions, my own preferences, they're worthless. You, you are holy, you are honorable. I'm going to go to the last place you told me to stand, and I'm going to ask you to show me what to do. Then when he speaks, speaking by his tabernacle, speaking in his presence, then we can know that the battle belongs to the Lord. Saints, we have to ask the question as we learn to wrestle and do this rightly. Are you standing under the direction of the priest or your own version of what you think is right? I'm going to leave that as a rhetorical question because I know in some areas you are standing under the priest and there are also vast areas you haven't considered and you're just under your own direction. But as we work through this, we're going to sift through the soil of our own heart and remove the rocks. While Judah's talking about that, I want to clear something up. We're subject often to these erroneous things like, oh, it's your way or the highway. No, friends, I don't care what you eat. I, I don't care what you wear unless it's lucidious. None of us care about things that God doesn't direct us in. But if an elder or a pastor is meeting with you about something, it's because it's something God wants to direct you in. These are not matters of a difference of opinion. There is God's opinion and everybody else's. And we must find out what God's opinion is. If a pastor or elder is talking to you, then you owe him double honor. That means you would consider twice what he said as opposed to anyone else. That continues to be a problem in this body that we're going to fix. Because if this church takes a stand on an issue and you are a part of this church, then you need to take that stand or, or ask yourself, was I ever really called to this church in the first place? But that is a really dangerous road to go down. Can you see why? Anytime you disagree with something, you will renegotiate your position. I think that you, what do we call it, Keith? Starry decisis? Yeah, I think that you ought to grab hold of the first thing that God told you, the original precedent, and stand on it and assume that there's a good possibility you might not be seeing it right. That helps so much. We don't renegotiate covenants that God gives us because he doesn't break them, and we shouldn't break them either. Okay? The basic question before you is, is what you're being asked to do sin or not? And if it is not sin, then why would you not give preferential treatment to the men and women that you said God brought you here to lead you? These are things that we don't want to continue to have to talk about. But both the text, the spirit, and the behavior of some in this congregation force us to. All right, saints. So we are going to <laughs> humble. Say, I don't know what to do. You can't tell me that something in your heart's not crying that out right now. The spirit of the almighty God is going to show us what to do. As we rightly operate under God's authority, where and how he spoke to us about it. Thanks. There are a few more things that we're going to address quickly as we keep moving. If we are intuiting something from the word, something from the Lord, we feel like he spoke to us about it, and you cannot find in the Peshat. Somebody say the Peshat. Peshat. The word of God confirming it and standing in right alignment with what you heard. You have no grounds for standing as if it is the voice of the living God. There are things that we do as spirit-filled Christians. We have a preference or a leaning. And we say that that was the voice of God. And then we find a sowed-based scripture to be the reason we're performing Acts 5, 29. 
The idea that we cannot obey because to obey you would be to disobey God. Saints, we need to grow up in our faith, and the Lord is willing to help us when we say we do not know what to do. Jehoshaphat does a good job here. His wife, his children, and his little ones are all affected by the decisions that we make. And he sees the deliverance of God. When we choose to operate in our own mere natural instincts and not rightly relate to authority, we threaten the lives of our wife, our children, and our little ones. We are men of authority, and we better relate rightly to the authority that is over us. I want to do a good job as a father. I want to do a good job as a husband. Is there any other man in the room that is crying out for this? I know in and of myself, I do not have what I need. But when I say that and I turn to him, he's faithful to supply it. Hey, we're moving on to verse 4. But elevating your preferences above what God says is against the authority structure that he has ordained. And it will harm you. We just want to tell you that Titus 3.10 says, Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with it. All right, I'm going to read that one more time. Yeah. Warn a divisive person once. Say once. Once. Then warn him a second time. Say second. Second. After that, have nothing to do with him. So, saints, we can clear the air if we just obey the written word of God and that would be enough for us. This would be super easy. You guys excited about obeying the word of God? Yes. Brother Linton, help us out with verse 4, brother. Hey, I'm going to do it. <laughs> just going to do it. If Titus 3.10 says that, should the church have to stand up and tell you, do not speak with so-and-so? No. We should never have to say that. You know why? The word of God already says it. And if the church has already said it, and the word of God says it, then what would we be doing? Amen. Let's grab a, verse 4. Abijah stood on the Mount in the hill country of Ephraim and said, Jeroboam and all Israel, listen to me. So Abijah, he's standing there with the priests, with the Levites, and everyone with him. And he's standing there on a mountain that is on a ridge right on the border of north and south. And he's speaking to Jeroboam. This is the same guy that rebelled from Rehoboam. He's still there. And he's speaking to Rehoboam and all the men that are with Rehoboam. And he's, telling, he's about to tell him something. But this is astounding because who's he facing? He's outnumbered two to one. Man, come on. In light of fear, in light of difficulty, he is about to make a charge because he knows what he stands for. He is outnumbered two to one. And he is about to invade enemy territory. Oh, come on. <laughs> Get it. It's not, it's not just that he's outnumbered two to one on his own turf. Because you can play defense all you want in a strategic position and you might win. He is about to go into the enemy's territory, outnumbered two to one. And he is going to stand for something. He's, he is facing overwhelming odds and he's doing it on foreign soil. I want to show you a slide so you can get a picture of this. Abijah and the men of Judah march all the way from Jerusalem up to Bethel. Do you see Mount Zimarim? That is the site of the battle. That is the site that, of the battle that will occur. Now you can get the picture. We've read the chapter. He's going to win that battle, and he is going to go on to take those three towns, Bethel, Orphrah, Jeshanah. Now, we've driven that many times. It's quite a distance. 
to be outnumbered two to one and to still know that the Lord is with you. Why? Because the priests are with him. There's no two opinions in his mind. The priests are with him. The Lord has spoken to his family. He is going outnumbered two to one and he is going to invade foreign soil. Come on, we need that kind of attitude in us, don't we? If you're not, I don't know how far to get into this, but if you have no wavering opinion in you, and you are confident with where God is putting you, it doesn't matter what the odds are. You can look right at the odds and say, I will charge anyway. Oftentimes we have a fear of failure that cripples us. But where you know where you stand with the Lord, where you, when you know what he has put you on this earth to do, it allows you to exploit the enemy on, for his name. Hey, let's get into verse 5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Wow. If the Democratic National Platform's to be believed, we have to get rid of salt. I mean, in some Democratic-controlled places we can't eat trans fats anymore people are going to count the grains we're going to have national health monitors but god speaks about a covenant of salt in a beautiful and interesting way it's an important concept and we want to show you what rashi says about it before we do anything else is that all right yes wow it's already on the screen so reading it from the masoretic text should you not know that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave the, kingdom to, gave the kingdom to David over Israel forever, to him and his sons with a covenant of salt. Do you hear I present it as they should already know this? Uh, like it would be a violation of what they already knew was right if they backed away from this principle? That's because all of Israel came and said, we want David to be our king and may his house rule over us forever. Until they had a disagreement... And then they didn't feel that way. Look what Rashi says about a covenant of soul. He says endurance and permanence. When God makes a promise, it is always marked by endurance and permanence. When you make a promise or a commitment, it should be marked by the same kind of endurance or permanence. That's a good word. This is what Jesus meant when he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That, That should endure and you should mean it. God's not of two opinions about anything, and he doesn't change his mind. The issue at hand in the northern kingdom is that there is a commitment promised to the house of David. And it was ordained as well as witnessed by God. And it was being treated as if it was breakable, negotiable under the present circumstances. See, Lord, if you knew what had happened then you'd understand why it was necessary for us to set up two idols and to break away from your nation. God doesn't think like that. No. There's never a time that he doesn't know what the circumstances are. That's an important principle for us to pick up. Now, their dispute was actually over taxation and labor. That's why a union boss, a teamster <laughs> named Jeroboam, decides that, look, we can't do this anymore. The wages we're being paid are not fair and the taxes are too high. That's not his choice to make. He already was a part of the body that said, you guys will reign over us forever. Of course, he thought it would be favorable at that time. It's the same thing that happened. This is the best church I've ever seen, Pastor Sutherland. 
You're preaching about my sin. I hate you. I hate your children. I hate your wife. I'm burning it down on my way out. That is what the sin of Samaria is ultimately all about. But nobody ever actually says that. What they do is go off and create an alternate version and call it the same thing. That's, that is what Samaria is. So what we're trying to get at is when you break these kind of commitments, these covenants of salt, the inevitable fruit of that is it corrupts your worship of Yahweh. You say that you're still doing all of the same things, but in reality, the fact that you had to break away is proof that you are not doing all of the same things. So you can make goat gods and call them Yahweh, but they will not be Yahweh no matter what you call them. You left that behind when you went on your own. Does that make sense? We want to show you what a few scholars say about a covenant of salt. It was a fast way to not have to teach for two hours on it. Can y'all see that at all? As salt was regarded as necessary, a necessary ingredient of daily food, and so of all sacrifices offered to Yahweh. You can see that in Leviticus 2.13. It's one of the reasons that you refer to something as a covenant of salt. It's an important daily event. It became an easy step to the very close connection between salt and covenant making. When men ate together, they became friends. It is still an Arab expression. There is salt between us. Speaking of friendship and what they had shared that was supposed to be permanent and enduring. He has eaten of my salt is another Arab expression to this day. Of course, it has to do with partaking of hospitality and a cemented or eternal friendship, but it has to do with more than that. Covenants were generally confirmed by sacrificial meals, and salt was always present. Since, too, salt is a preservative, it would easily become symbolic of an enduring covenant. So offerings to Yahweh were to be a statute forever, a covenant of salt before the Lord. You can see the reference there is Numbers 18, 19. This is what is being referred to here in 2 Chronicles 13, 5. David's rulership was a covenant of salt, meaning permanence and endurance. Think on Mark 9, 50 then and ask yourself, do you have salt in yourselves? Or has your salt lost its saltiness? What you said would be permanent. What you said would endure forever. Why do we have the divorce rate in this country we have? Because people have lost their saltiness. Why do we have the unfaithfulness that we have? People have lost their saltiness. When God says something, that settles it forever. He never needs to change his mind. In fact, he doesn't. It's us who does, and it is a special kind of idolatry to blame that change of mind on him. And it happens all of the time. On concepts like permanence and endurance, these are things that we culturally are really not that familiar with. Like we say, a diamond lasts forever, and yet what it's supposed to symbolize all too often, as we just stated, doesn't last forever. It's a relationship with Yahweh, with our Savior, Jesus. It has to be based upon a permanence and an endurance. When we think about the offerings, by offerings I mean the commitments, 
the devotion, the sacrifices that you have offered to the Lord, is it permanent and enduring, or is it being renegotiated based upon your circumstances, based upon how you financially are doing this month, or based upon how your work has gone over the last couple weeks? We need a covenant of salt in our life, saints. We need to renew a covenant of salt that is permanent, that is enduring. All too often we share salt, if you will, in the way that they used it as a phrase between friends with the world in areas that we should have no permanence and no endurance. I want you to consider your friendships. Are they salty, permanent, and enduring with those that have been disloyal and dissident? Are they with those that are loyal adherents to the representation of God? James 4.4 4 is something that we mentioned yesterday, that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. What is salty in your life? Do you have an enduring love for your brother? Do you have an enduring love for your natural brother or your friends? What is the covenant of salt? Saints, I promise you, you have one. The question is, is it rightly allocated? We're religiously faithful to our pet peeves, to our pet habits, to our preferences and our favorites. But when it comes time to actual devotion, just like the men that we're reading about, we forget about the covenant of salt quickly. When the Lord told you who your leaders, who your pastors were, was there salt in your commitment? Hey, I want to be discipled. That commitment was something that you honored, supposed to honor before God. That you are the man that is supposed to help me become who I am. And then you hear a harsh word, or you feel busy, and two weeks go by and you've been totally unfaithful to that covenant. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you are called here, let it be a covenant of salt. But I'm warning you, the fact that you've already stated it means that the die has already been cast. We don't get to renegotiate after the fact. You do have the ability to evaluate your future commitments. Yeah. But the ones that we've made now, we're wholly accountable to. Hey, say something with me. Desalinate. Desalinate. All right, who wants to explain what that is? Pull the salt out of something, right? To desalinate is to pull the salt out. You will not desalinate simply because you disagree. The whole purpose of the relationship is when there is disagreement to figure out where the Lord stands and the first and primary way he does that is through the leaders that he put in your life. That's not cultish, that's biblical. If it feels cultish, it's because you've been hanging out in Samaria where there's multiple choices for everything and they're all equally right. Okay? Simply put, are you going to be worth your salt? When you say something, are you worth the salt that you say goes into it? Now, my little girl's in the room tonight. Abby, stand up for a minute. Wave to everybody. I love Abby. And uh, she is precious. She tells you, you can sit down now. She says, oh, don't be salty, Daddy. Don't be salty, Daddy. She likes to say that. I don't know why. (laughs) Do you know what it usually means? Daddy, do not be angry or gruff. Do you know what the context usually is? As a father, I do exactly what I said I was going to do. I have to be salty. Don't have to be angry, but I cannot yield on what must be permanent and must be enduring. Those kind of wavering standards produce wavering people. The people in the Bible are those that would not waver between two opinions. They chose the Lord's opinion. Now, I want my little girl to love me. I want her to like me. I want to spend time with her. But never at the expense 
of wavering on commitments that God himself has established or else I am not worthy of being her father. It is that stability that you raise the house of God in. And it's one that we're all going to grow up in. Amen? Amen. Verse 6, Brother Linton. Yet Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an official of Solomon, son of David, rebelled against his master. Some worthless <laughs> scoundrels gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when he was young and indecisive and not strong enough to resist him. Wow. So forget everything that you knew about this. Forget about everything you knew about the splitting of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Forget that you knew that, that this was the Lord's will and he spoke it through his prophet. Ezra's perspective here says that Rehoboam was young and indecisive. These men were able to rebel because Rehoboam was young and indecisive. You know, that is exactly why these mistakes are being made in this church now. That is exactly why we have so many of the problems that we have, because people are young and indecisive, inexperienced, and they allow things their sympathies allow things to go on long enough and it doesn't get dealt with and it ends up in problems. Let's take a deep look into this concept. I want to put the Hebrew word for indecisive. It's rock. Sounds close to wreck, but it's not. It's rock. It means delicate or soft. Man, I just want to be, you know, I just want to be soft-hearted to this person. It means implying weakness of undeveloped character. Ooh, there we go. Wow. Weakness of undeveloped character. That is what it means to be indecisive. You know what I've noticed? That people that have undeveloped character usually are saying, I'm not weak, I'm strong, I made this decision because I just want to love this brother. But the Bible calls that undeveloped character and weakness. I also love the last part. You see where it says, so of women, delicate like a woman. Look at the very bottom right. So of women. This is, this is the word that's used to speak of Leah. She had soft eyes. She had delicate eyes. This is a word used to describe women. As men, we should not be this. We have to stand where God's standard is, and we have to be very firm and strong. Women who are mature in Christ aren't like this. It's funny when the women display greater holy masculinity than many of the young, strong men. But we need to recognize it for what it is. It's simply immaturity. It's when you don't know yet enough to know how wrong you are. Ask one of the elders. Do you know what they'll say immediately when you ask a question? What did the pastor say? You know why they know that? Because the pastors are right more often than they're wrong. But you ask a 25-year-old in this church something, he'll give you nine of his opinions, eight of which don't agree with each other. Because he is young and indecisive. He's got a heart like an itty-bitty baby girl. He's just in a man's body. And the thing is, is God is trying... A little manlet, right? God is going to grow us up so that when we have a conviction, it means something. When we have a conviction, it's permanent. When we have a conviction, it's, it's going to mature us. This is why it says that a recent convert cannot become an elder. Otherwise, they'll become conceited. They'll be young and indecisive about a subject, all the while thinking they're strong because they're giving advice. Immature Christians believe they can stand for God 
without realizing that they are not standing with God. They do that. They're immature. And the reason why they do that is because they don't have enough experience to actually test and approve what God's will is. It is so easy to believe that you're standing with God just because you have just a good feeling about something. Or just because, you know, you had a good inclination and then you start thinking that good inclination is actually what the Lord's speaking. But you don't realize that that is not where the Lord's standing. This deepens divisions rather than heals them. The very thing you think will fix the problem usually makes it worse. It also destroys church discipline and muddies the paths of repentance. I've seen so many times when church discipline is laid down and young and indecisive Christians think that they can go to the brother who's receiving church discipline, soften it a little bit, and that'll make it better. No, this always destroys the discipline that is intended to save their life, and it muddies the path that they have to repentance. They actually have a path to come back, but they can't see it because young and indecisive Christians muddy that. We want to hand out a few scriptures on this topic. Rob, you get Proverbs 25, 26. Emmy, you get Exodus 14, 10 through 14. JJ, you get Isaiah 7, verse 9. Gabe. Brenton, you get Nehemiah 6, 8. Gabe, you get Luke 9.62. Cody, you get Ephesians 6.13. Paul Rosales, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. Nolan, Revelation 3, 2. Proverbs 25, 26. Like a muddy spring or a polluted well, is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Wow. In other words, compromise never fixes compromise. If somebody is already not walking rightly, you will not fix it by not walking rightly. <laughs> to put it in Elvis Presley's words, when things go wrong, don't go with them. When you read this, it's again one of those scenarios. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. In your mind, there's already two categories. One man is righteous, the other man is wicked. Let me ask you, which one of us is not both? What if you read this more like it is intended to be understood? A dynamic translation. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous acting man in the majority sense who gives way to a man who is presently acting wickedly. See, it's not that we're talking about Anton LaVey or Hitler. We're talking about a man who is presently doing something that is wrong. And when you yield on that point, you are destroying a clear view of righteousness. That is so important. These lines are what protect us all the way around. In fact, they save lives. By drawing them, the man who is not acting rightly, he learns what it takes to get right. If you keep crossing the line, he doesn't even understand that there is one, no matter how many times it's said. If the pastors and the elders bring something before the body of Christ... It's because years have gone by without being able to fix the problem. Please don't think that the weakest among us, and you won't consider yourself weak, can fix that problem alone in your living room. But it's the definition of weakness. You don't even understand your own capability. They are a danger to you 
You are not a help to them. And the way this always shows up, just so that we're very clear, is the dissident does not call the strongest sheep. The dissident always calls the sheep that is on the fringe, that is on the edge, the one that is being overcome by immorality, and clouds the decision-making of righteous men. It has to stop. It just cannot go on. Look at the lives of your leaders, just like Hebrews 13 says. If you like what you see, then obey those leaders. If you don't like what you see, then go back and look and see whether you were ever supposed to be there in the first place or if you chose it because it was close to your favorite diner or where you get your hair cut. Oh, pastor, I'm not weak. I'm not on the edge. I'm not in the back of the room, spiritually speaking. Or physically. No. (laughs) I don't know why they always call me. It just seems to happen that way. I think it's because God gave me a ministry reconciliation. (laughs) Hey, who is Exodus 14 for me? All right, babe, you're going to have to read it loud and proud, and I'm going to interrupt you a lot, but you can do it. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. All right, so we're going to pause right there. We have men who are terrified. They see an actual enemy, but they cry out to the Lord. Okay, keep rolling. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that he brought us to the desert to die? Pause, baby. Somebody say soft. 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 Character. Character. Saints, no matter what you profess or how dramatically the Lord has moved in your life, maybe he delivered you from Egypt. Maybe you've seen signs, wonders, miracles, and judgments that brought you here. Your character, your constitution, and your conviction will be proven to either be mature or immature based upon how you reflect your leaders and God. As we keep reading, you're going to find out Moses does not respond the same way. Keep going, baby. What have you done to to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Man, pastor, you've been so bad to me. I was sitting in slavery. Didn't I say just leave me here? Keep reading. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. All right, saints, those of you who have been here for a little while remember messages like the devil in the deep blue sea. I don't have to explain all of the grammar involved in be still and what it means, but it means quiet your crazy emotions, quiet your crazy mind, and you can fill in the rest of the words that I'm thinking. Saints, your character is tested when the Lord has spoken to you and you have leaders that are showing you the right direction. And you're of all kinds of opinions. Man, it wouldn't be good that we came out here. It would be better to live than die. I'd rather live in slavery than this. You have a multitude of counselors in your mind already. But when you stand with God in a matter, he will fight for you. Yes! Saints, we have to grab hold of this. We are constantly renegotiating, allowing fear to creep in and letting other decisions come in. When we stand with God in the matter, not our opinions, with God, he is the one who will do the fighting. The majority of the people were acting like Samaritans. They were faithless, saltless, no permanence, no endurance, sinful, even though they were deemed by God. 
These were people who came out of slavery, were baptized. And yet, here they are, acting like Samaria. All right, now, we know there's nobody in the house that's been redeemed and been acting like a Samaritan in your mind. Moses had to know where the Lord stood. Praise God for leaders. Emulate their faith and know where God stands. Nothing else is of any importance. Moses knew where the Lord stood. He did what the Lord told him to do, and he represented God's position well. Amen. That's all that you need. Amen. If we can represent the Almighty God through the leaders that are in our life, through the written Word of God, through the Spirit of God, we will see the hand of God at work in our life. Amen. Hey, who has Isaiah, Isaiah 7? Man, that's a good word, isn't it? What I love about this passage in Isaiah is this is taking place a couple hundred years after what we're reading in 2 Chronicles 13. And this is about the same civil war that they're fighting now, the north against the south. And obviously the people are very afraid, and I love God's response. Don't worry about that guy. He's only just a king. Yeah. He's only this guy. He's just, all he is is just a man to me. He has to remind them That if you're not standing firm, you won't stand at all. If you're not standing where I stand, God's saying, then you're not going to stand at all. Man, this is God teaching the people how to stand. We have to learn how to stand with the Lord. Learning how to stand with the Lord is something that matures in us. Amen. It's not something we're born again with. We have to learn how to hear the voice of God, know where He's standing, and to be honest, Who of us has that down 100%? None of us. It's a very difficult thing sometimes, but it's worth wrestling through and maturing in. It's something we have to grow in. It matures in us, but if it will not mature in us, then we will not stand. If you do not allow the Lord to teach you, if you do not allow the Lord like a father showing you, son, this is how you put your feet where my feet are. I'm giving you pastors to show you how to put your feet where my feet are. If you do not allow that to grow in your life, if you fight back at it and you you persist and say, I know that I'm right and where I'm standing is right, well, eventually you'll find yourself falling. This is something that the Lord has to teach you and you have to mature in. These depths of convictions that we're talking about, they grow in maturity inside of you. If that depth of maturity doesn't grow inside of you, It doesn't matter how long you've been in the kingdom. It doesn't matter any other thing. You don't actually mature in the kingdom. We see this played out in regular life every day when you see a full-grown man that acts like a small child. He never learned this kind of depth of maturity, even though physically he matured. Let's take a lesson from Nehemiah. It'll be chapter 6 and verse 8 and 9. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. What a great prayer. I have been in ministry now for a while. And um, I've noticed that you can cast demons out of somebody and they can slander you later. I've noticed that you can see somebody delivered from homelessness, get a job, get a family, 
get life going good, and suddenly you are an evil idiot to them. I, it's, it's a remarkable thing. I love Nehemiah's depth of convictions. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. Yeah. You're making this up in your own head. That is a depth of conviction. He is unmoved by the dissident behavior. In fact, he is the best cure for the dissident behavior. Amen. This is what it means to stand on the high ground and invite others up to it. But don't run down. You know, if you engage a fool in his, in his argument, he will drag you down to his level and beat you with his experience in it. It is much better to just stand on what you know God said. So, saints, we have a couple scriptures that we're going to walk through quickly together. I want, let's read Luke 9, 62. We're going to comment on it and then go straight to Ephesians 6, 13. Read when you're ready. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Those who turn back from what God has called them to do have soft character, constitution, and <laughs> conviction. No more commentary on that is necessary. Who has Ephesians six thirteen? Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day come, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. Then yes, somebody say yes. 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 We are going to put on the full armor of God. We are not going to be vulnerable. We're not going to be weak. We're not going to be children playing with grown men's toys. God wishes to armor this church that we might stand in a great contest of faith like we're called to. No more weak-willed Christians. No more baby men. We're going to stand up and stand no matter what it costs us. Who has Thessalonians? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Yeah. You know how we have lived among you for your sake. Now Paul here is describing the Thessalonians like we think of you. Loved by God. Being chosen. Gospel coming not just with words, but with power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know you have that gospel when you have power and the depth of conviction that allows you to stand where God told you to stand. You know you're maturing in that gospel when that depth of conviction is growing, where that depth of conviction is deepening and you are standing firmly in what God is continually revealing to you. It's important to hear the warning from Revelation before we get back in our text, though. Who's got Revelation 3-2? Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and yeah. repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Well, now that we can consider this problem corrected, would y'all like to jump back into the text? Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into verse 8. Come on, Mr. Linton. And now you plan to resist the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David's descendants. You are indeed a vast army. And have with you the golden cows that Jeroboam made to be your gods. I want to show you this in the Greek. It's, it's rather instructive. And now you speak to oppose against the face of the kingdom of the Lord. In the hands of the sons of David. To the northern kingdom, it seemed like there were two equally divine pathways that could be followed. In my experience, all backsliders speak that way. To the northern kingdom, it seemed 
like this was a personal conflict. In my experience, all backsliders act that way. To the northern kingdom, it seemed like there were a number of signs of God's endorsement on their life, especially the size of people that agreed with them. All backsliders speak that way. The cry of Moses was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's not of two opinions about anything. There are not two equally valid approaches to anything. It's never about the clash of two personalities with him. There is simply the way that God has directed whether you prefer it or not. Amen. The LXX makes something very clear. It's highlighted on the screen. The actions of Jeroboam and those following him were opposing the face of God himself. They're staring at men and they think the problem is with men. But it's not. The problem is with God. And the same issue occurs if we appropriately stand in the stead of Jesus Christ and people have an issue with us. Jesus said the real issue was between them and him. That's what it means to be a man of authority because you're standing under authority. You're reflecting the very face of God. Let's go to verse 9. But didn't you drive out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and make priests of your own as the peoples of other lands do? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not God. Saints, I'm sure the Samaritans wouldn't have admitted to it. Not any more than it is readily admitted to in megachurches all around us. Readily admitted to in backsliding Christians all around us. This was about cash and convenience, not character and convictions. This was about the easiest, most profitable route that could be taken. Simple enough. Let's take a look at verse 10 and see how this unfolds. As for us, the Lord is our God. Hey man, wait, wait. As for us, the Lord is our God. Don't you want to agree with that statement? Shouldn't that be the defining feature in this room? Let's read it again together. As for us, the Lord is our God. And we have not forsaken the city. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron and the Levites' assistant. Every morning and every evening they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread of the ceremony, ceremonially clean table and the light and light the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken them. Now I want you to catch this. Do you see the articles of the tabernacle there? Yes. They're listed in reverse direction. It's mentioned walking from the inside of the Holy of Holies outward. Come on, Carlito. That's right. Starting in the Holy of Holies and walking outward. It starts by mentioning the high priest Aaron. He's envisioned in the Holy of Holies and his sons. He walks out to the altar of incense. He then passes by the table of the bread of his face. Then he passes by the menorah of God. This is how decisions are made. This is the right way decisions are made. By going through the tabernacle, seeking God's face and where he stands, and then coming back out in reverse order. When they are made this way, then they are worth going to war over. 
any other decision, something else that you did not fervently pray through the tabernacle about and then come back out the way you came is not worth going to war over. That's how you get yourself killed. Isn't that really what Psalm 4 teaches in our marriage counseling? Isn't that what Psalm 25 teaches in our marriage counseling? This is not a new teaching. We've been doing this since, well, before a bunch of you were born. And um, look, the Greek here is also very telling. I usually quote Hebrew in the Older Testament, but tonight I found some gems in the LXX. Let's throw it on the screen. And they burned to the Lord whole burnt offerings morning by morning and evening by evening, and they have the incense composition and place settings of bread loaves. I know that you're thinking, what is insightful about that? Well, when you're thinking of incense composition, which is how they translated it for the rest of the world, this is Exodus 30, verse 37 and 38. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. Notice the implication then. The northern kingdom could not make the incense that was ordained of God. They didn't have a place of God. They didn't have a priest of God. They didn't have the festivals of God. They only had something that looked like it. There's only one right way. There were not two equally valid paths representing respectable differences of opinions between peers. God had a prescribed way. Yes. And there was no other way. Look, fragrances are hard to fake. You should be able to smell the genuine anointing of God. Especially if you have personally been walking through the tabernacle. And if you can't, then you probably didn't get close enough to the Holy of Holies to know what we're talking about. You ought to be able to sense this. And you can't. You'll sense the fragrance of Christ. You're maturing. This topic ought to call to mind words of Paul about a fragrance of life and a fragrance of death. We know how that should relate to the outside world around us, though we rarely apply it, but we're going to grow in it. But we must consider the fact that often fragrant incense is being offered, though it's not pleasant to the flesh. We must recognize the times that we are looking at God's pure, holy composition, and it feels like death to us. That's an indicator that there's something between us and the Lord that must be reconciled. There's something inside of you that is leading you other than God's prescribed manner. You have more than one opinion. Hey, Brother Linton, what's verse 12? God is with us. He is our leader. Amen. His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you, men of Israel. Do not go to fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. And I love the way that this is declared. God is with us. He is our leader. And then the proof of that is the priest with their trumpets will sound the battle cry. Listen, the devil is crafty. He's been around a long time. He's good at what he does. He tricked these people because of their own sinful desires in relation to the Samaritans and to believing they were fighting with men but they were actually fighting against the God that they claimed to serve at Bethel. Saints, you never go to war with your brother or your pastor thinking that you're going to war against somehow something more than just a man. 
When the reality is you're staring God in the face and the words that come out of your mouth directly reflect how you feel about God's commandments. They believe they were just fighting against men because that's what the devil intended when you got that offense that has been shading your eyesight. This is largely because they thought they were two valid options, different points of view or perspectives, instead of one holy standard. Remember the words of Elijah. He called out to these people. How long will you waver between two opinions? The prophet of God that is renowned for the miraculous, renowned for a life that was supernatural, effective, and changing, a man of deep conviction, didn't believe that there was two opinions. And he wasn't speaking to Aram. He wasn't speaking to Edom. He was speaking to people who were familiar with God. We're confident of better things in your case this evening. We want to think on what Abijah means and show you a slide for just a moment here. Abijah means God is my father or God is my daddy. Now think of that. When Abijah is speaking to these people, this is what his name means. He's speaking to Jeroboam, but he's also speaking to the men of Israel with Jeroboam. You catching that? Yes. He does not want to go to war with these people. He is speaking to the men because they are his brothers. His name means God is my father. He's wanting them to come and join in the same kind of fatherhood. You know, the more closely you're fathered by God, the easier it is to recognize godly fathers in your life. These men did not recognize a godly father in their life because they were not being fathered by God. They were willing to go to war with their brothers. And Abijah's making an appeal. He's saying, look, God is my father. Is my brother come and be fathered together? Look, the absence of one of these truths, the absence of one of these makes the other impossible as well. If you are not being fathered by a father in this house, it's impossible to see God as your father. If you're not being fathered by God, it's impossible to see who your fathers in this room are. You have to have both at the same time. And tonight you have to have the vision to see which one you're not getting. There are some men in this room that do not see who their fathers are in this room. And they're not able to see where the Lord is standing rightly because they can't relate to him. They relate to him like a slave because that's the only mentality they have. We need both in this room tonight. And we're going to get it. Amen? Amen. Would you all like to go to verse 13? Are you learning tonight? Yes. All right. Let's pick up in 13. Now Jeroboam had sent troops around to the rear. So that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush was behind him. Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked at both front and rear. Mm. Then they cried out to the Lord. The the priests blew their trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. At the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Look, we could break out into a long scripture string. You know how we tend to do. And that scripture string would show you that the method of victory that God ordains, of course, this passage already does that. So we're just going to point it out from the passage itself. Notice the order of events in the passage. You might even, just getting out there for you, write them down. Number one, cry out to the Lord. Take it to the throne, not the phone. Go straight to God. Cry out to the Lord. Number two, the priest should respond first. Why else would they be your priest if they don't know what to do? 
You cry out to the Lord first. Second, what are the priests doing? Third, the people followed the priest into battle as Deuteronomy 20 described. The priests knew what Yahweh's will was and the people could see that and they followed it. Four, God fought for the men of Judah because they were on his side in the conflict. Amen. You don't get a side. Are you for me or my enemies? He asked. Neither. I've come that God's will would be done. Look, this is how this works. Cry out to the Lord. Number one, watch to see what the priests do. Number two, number three, join in what the priests are doing. Raise your battle cry as loud as theirs. Four, stand back and watch God fight the battle that he has directed. See, that's a much better plan than what is commonly being done. It yields much better results. And it creates this beautiful thing between the priest and the people where they actually love each other. They trust each other. They can count on, they have salt between each other. There's a kind of security in the relationship that God intended. When you rightly know how to relate to the father, you then know how to relate to the priest. And the end result of that is that something supernatural begins to take place in your day, your time, and your setting. The armies of heaven rally and respond to the direction that God already gave. Man to be in the house of God and respond to God's direction, to have aligned yourself with him. Not just to be in proximity with him, but to be with him. I'm going to read to you out of Numbers 23, and there's something interesting that we're going to garner here. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. What? He is a God that can be depended upon. The next one's a question. Does he speak and then not act? No, no. Saints, we say no all too easily, but I can see in your eyes when things are difficult whether or not you actually believe that, whether or not you actually trust your father and are intimate with him. Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless, and he has blessed. I cannot change it. Balaam was smarter than most. (laughs) He was smarter than most in the room. He thinks, ah, this leader has asked me to do something, and I think that it's going to harm my calling. Man, God can't bless me now. I'm never going to get there. Listen, when God has issued a command to bless those that are aligned with him, no man can stop it. But when man aligns with God's will, something begins to build. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. Despite your circumstances, despite your fear, whatever it is you think is going to eat your lunch, no misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king is among them. The word shout is not just shout in English. It's teruah. It's the announcement, of course, of a feast. It's prescribed. But what you just read about, where the priest blew trumpets, that was an announcement for war, is what is being described here. We're not going to go into it this evening, but the LXX even describes the heavenly beings that are with him, that are the shout of the king behind it. When we align ourselves with God, and as one man with the priest, a teruah of God is beginning to resound, you should have confidence that the army of God is behind it. 
You find yourself without direction. You find yourself unable to garner a purpose with weak, soft constitu constitutions and convictions. The end result, the end thing that we must focus in on is how do we actually relate to God and the priests that are in our house? Listen, we cannot claim to rightly relate to God and understand the authority that he's placed on our life if it doesn't show up with our brothers and fathers on our left and right. But show me a man that has very little to his name, that is not articulate, that has not proud in this world, but rightly understands his relationship to his fathers, has authority on his life. Man, there's a shout of a king behind that guy. Yeah! I would take men in India that are barely literate, cannot read or write, but understand this authority structure. They're five foot two men. They can't even project loud enough for a crowd to hear it, but yet there's a shout of a king when they speak. Yeah. Listen, those of you that think that you're strong, what you do when things happen, whether or not you stand in the will of God or fear dominates you, lets you know whether or not you have woman-like convictions or you have mature, manly convictions that came from your fathers. Listen, this is another message we're not getting into tonight. But masculinity dis uh, bestows masculinity. You don't get it by being isolated. You will never become masculine no matter how much you try to prove it on the outside without actually relating to a father in the right way. All you're doing is preserving your weak, tender-hearted state. We are going to become men of God that know what a great contest of faith looks like. Amen? Amen? Amen. Hey, let's pick up at 16 and read to 17. The Israelites fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hands. Abijah and his men inflicted heavy losses on them, so that there were 500,000 casualties among Israel's men. Man, <laughs> hallelujah, the right side won, right? Shout of a king. Except these are brothers. You know, we did the math. Remember when we said that every man standing righteously with God or let, let's rephrase that. Every man that was standing under the authority and the structure that God placed, they faced two men. It was two to one on every count. They faced two men that were not standing under the authority of God. 400,000 faced 800,000 men. Every man rightly aligned with God's authority. If you do the math right, they killed 500,000. They killed one and a quarter man each. Killed one and a quarter man each. Now, what did that look like? I don't know. Like, hey, I killed my guy. Now help me chop his head and you get a leg. I don't know. They killed. are rings. <laughs> In reality, you can only kill one man. And what we're talking about is, of course, that 300,000 got to go home. But what we're using is math as a bit of a joke here to show you that you never come out of a battle that you're on the wrong side of completely whole, okay? Yeah. If you had a tender heart before, now you have three quarters of a tender heart. We're trying to protect you. That's what is happening here. Because God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of anyone, especially those he redeemed. Look, Ezekiel 18.32 says that. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. You know what the answer is? Repent and live! Yes. In the generation just before me, almost 80,000 people died in Vietnam. 
In this battle, 500,000 people died in a single conflict. Think through that for a minute. Because all of them were a part of the nation of God. Some had just broken away in their own little faction. And they still thought they were worshiping God. In fact, they had two convenient locations. And the numbers were on their side. And they chose priests from among the people. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And more convenient feast days. I mean, it's all a good idea, right? No, they didn't even have the anointing oil of God made in the prescribed way. See, you don't know when you're deceived, or we wouldn't call it deception. And this kind of preaching is aimed at keeping you from being deceived. This is an unnecessary loss of brothers. Yes. I spent all day Sunday fighting to keep brothers. All day Sunday. Because we want you. We love you. Unnecessary loss of brothers is because of the rejection of fatherhood. No father will sacrifice his children. This house is not built to throw people away. It's built to protect the ones that want to be fathered. Which should tell you something about those that you have been warned against. That should tell you something. Nobody starts a church and says, how few chairs can I put in it? We start a church because we want to change the world. Okay? But we can only do that with those who actually want to do it in the prescribed way. All other ways have already been proven to not work. Vis-a-vis your life before you got here. Let's pick up in verse 18. The men of Israel were subdued on that occasion. And the men of Judah were victorious because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Man, I love this. It's not Abijah that is victorious. It's the people of Judah. The victory belonged to the congregation of those that believed when they rightly aligned themselves with the Lord and his victories. Listen, saints, part of being in leadership is that you're responsible for every failure and nobody's successes. Yeah, the way that this well was, <laughs> The way that this was viewed, and it should be viewed, is the sons, the ones that were under the king's authority, were the ones that had the victory. Listen, we have the opportunity to align ourselves with God and see a victory for your brothers on your left and right. See ones that your fathers can stand back and watch and be proud of. This is the result of two things. The men of Judah trusting the Lord beyond their own perceptions, beyond their own opinions and preferences. The second thing is that they properly aligned themselves with God's purposes. It's simple as that. The things that steer us away from aligning ourselves with God's purposes is your own opinions, is your own preferences, is your personality. Forgive me, but to hell with your personality. It's not that great. I don't care what your mama told you. And it's destined for hell anyway. You need the personality that comes from Jesus the Christ. Ezra is working to display the sovereignty of God in a situation that is far from perfect. In other words, it's a real situation just like ours. Look, Ezra's working to display the sovereignty of God in a situation far from perfect. In other words, this situation. I want to show you a slide that shows these kings. You see right there where it says in Judah, the king, the years, and then where they started it and ended. Rehoboam clearly evil, started in evil and ended evil. Abijah also started evil and ended in evil. 
Is that a shock to anybody? If you read the book of Kings, there's about a paragraph on Abijah's life. And it says that he did evil. He had the ways of his father Rehoboam in his heart. Abijah is described as doing evil in the book of 1 Kings. But he was still God's king over God's nation. On this day, though, he did well. Amen. Amen. The point is that leaders are imperfect. Say amen to that. Amen. If you're leading a household, if you're leading anything in your life, you ought to be able to say that pretty truly. Leaders aren't perfect, but ordained of God, and you should obey them unless it means sin to do so. So Justin's going to take us the rest of the way through some conclusions here. But I, I, I really need you to grasp this. How many of you are parents? Raise your hand. And as parents, you are uniquely endowed with a perfected decision-making process, right? <laughs> Of course you want. And on any given day, you might really get it wrong. And yet you are your child's parent. How benefited are they if from the time they're born, all they can do is point out your flaws? Will that help them? No. Of course it won't help them. It's no different with any other kind of leader. We're all screwed up. We're made of the same diseased soil. But nevertheless, God made us leaders of this house. And it will not benefit you to disregard every bit of godly advice that we give simply because you find some flaw in our lives. Now, you're fortunate. There are three pastors in this place. There are three elders, or I guess there's a pastor-elder combo. I don't really know what I am these days. (laughs) And two-thirds of them are pretty fantastic, okay? (laughs) But even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. Why don't you assume, since we've already agreed none of us know what to do, that God would tell the people he put in charge what to do? Especially if you haven't taken the time to even get in the tabernacle about it. I ask one question consistently when people disagree with us. And how much time did you spend seeking the face of God about this? They always rush to tell me why they're saying what they're saying. They never look me in the eye and say, I've been fasting for weeks about this subject. But your leaders are on their face constantly about these things. We would never disassociate with somebody if we hadn't contemplated it for as long as it took and we thought we would be offending God if we didn't disassociate with them. Keep in mind, there are confidences that we cannot share. We simply don't. I won't for you. I won't for anyone else. There's usually more than one good reason we're telling you something, and we do not owe it to you to tell you why. Is it, isn't that pretty straightforward? Yes. Okay, if that sounds harsh to you, think about all the things that I know about your life that I don't tell everyone else. Thank you, Pastor. Okay. Now, when thinking about these kings, Rehoboam and Abijah were both evil. Rehoboam and Abijah both had shorter reigns than Jeroboam. That sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And those line of Israelite kings, there's hardly any of them that you would consider good. And these two kings of Judah, they had shorter spans than Jeroboam did. And Jeroboam, it seems like that's a tragedy, but you know what about Jeroboam? 
He was a standard of evil that was rarely exceeded. You're going to see in the coming chapters when it refers to evil, it'll say that they did evil just like Jeroboam did. See, Jeroboam seemed like he had a long life. It may seem like someone is doing okay, but you consider their final outcome, not their present popularity. It's not about how they're doing in the moment. It's not about how many people are flocking to Jeroboam, how many people want to come see this new inventive way of worship. It is about their final outcome and how they end their life. Psalm 73, verse 16 through 17 says, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. It can be oppressive looking at a man that you know is wicked, looking at a man that seems like they're doing well, but they're getting away with it. Until you enter the sanctuary of God, until you pray through the tabernacle, until you get your heart right and stand where God stands, then you can understand that their final destiny You can understand that they will reap what they've sown. You can be sure that their sin will find them out. That church is growing faster than you guys. Yeah, give it a few decades. Because these pastors don't sleep with people that aren't their wives. These pastors don't take money that's not theirs. These pastors' children have ups and downs, but they serve the Lord. Okay, I... I don't know what else to say other than we stand on the merit of what God has done through us. And we don't brag beyond what God has accomplished through us. If that's not enough for somebody, then they're probably on the wrong flight. I I mean, I don't know what else to say. I want to summarize some of this in some closing slides, okay? Because it really is quite profound when it comes down to it. Let's read verses 19 and 20, and we're going to start there. From him the towns of Bethel, Jeshana, and Ephraim, with their surrounding villages. Jeroboam did not regain power during the time of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. Whatever else Abijah didn't get right, he put an end to a scourge on ten tribes. I love that. There's an awful lot I haven't gotten right in my life. But I hope at the end of my life, I put an end to a scourge in a lot of your lives. (laughs) What this chapter reveals is there's only one way. There's not two. I mean, that's really what it reveals. Samaria, the northern kingdom, those whom Jeroboam is ruling over, is defined by two choices in everything. And both of them are wrong. Okay, I want to show you that. Let's start with two kingdoms. In this slide, the southern kingdom, which is Judah, is represented in purple. The northern kingdom, Israel, is represented in green. The northern kingdom is your average megachurch. It's got two convenient campus locations. It has trendy, fanciful pastors that everybody loves. I mean, they Twitter with the best of them. I'm happy to say I haven't tweeted once in my life and never going to. Okay? I'm not a social media pastor and neither are these guys. They provided a second choice for everybody in Israel. Do you know what that choice cost them? Let's dig down on Samaria. Let's go to our next slide. The northern kingdom of Samaria, sometimes called Israel, had two golden calves. Those golden calves, they referred to as Yahweh. 
But it was not Yahweh. Their Bible, the Samaritan Pentateuch, it was close to right, but it's five letters off. I don't know how many letters you can get wrong. I guess it depends specifically on how important those words are to you. To me, they're very important. Those two choices in the Samaritan kingdom could be related to you. You can be sitting there going, well, there's more than one way to handle this, and I don't know if the pastors have done it right. Yes, but you don't even know which two choices are right. See, God is not torn in decision-making process. He doesn't wrestle. He doesn't say, on the one hand, I feel this way, and on the other hand, I feel that way. He's not insecure. He's not weak in his constitution. Not at all. He has one prescribed right way. How sure are you that you're in that prescribed right way? And then how many of your choices are you sure? Let me show you one other slide. The southern kingdom is defined by their house of worship. That tiny little thing over there that looks like Moses' tabernacle because I couldn't squeeze Solomon's temple into it (laughs) defines the way in which we make a right choice. Do you start off concerned about the greatness of God's name? Do you then move to a brazen altar where you address the debased, wretched, sinful nature that is in you? And then move to a place where God is showing you the image of the man defined by his word that you should be washing your hands and feet so that you're ready to carry out his desires, not yours? And then enter into a holy place with him. Where then and only then can you ask him to lead you by his spirit of holiness. Because you already know based on your past there's no chance you'll make a good decision. You want him to make it for you. And then does that spirit serve as a source of an illumination like the menorah on the word of God showing you in the word where God is instructing you that you must stand so that you can be at a golden altar of incense and partner with what God actually wants done on earth? Because that is how decisions are designed to be made in God's kingdom. In Samaria, you can just bring more calves and they'll make you a priest. But in the southern kingdom, In the kingdom established by God, there was only one path to one throne and one decision in every circumstance. Friends, if you realize how high those stakes are, you might be asking for help from the godly fathers in this house. Oh, come on. Instead of persecuting the godly fathers for standing with God their father. I'm going to tell you, actually, it's not in our notes. But would you put 1 John 1 and start in verse 2. It's either 2 or 3. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You can question a lot of things. But you really ought not question that Matthew P. Rowe, Wade Sutherland, have been transformed by this very statement. But it gets better. Go to verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with 
us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You can try it another way if you want to. (laughs) But look at the results that have been built in this house. And then work out with fear and trembling how readily you cast aside something that one of these anointed men of God says. They're imperfect. So was Abijah. But they might very well be representing God's decision and you could be spitting in the face of God by working against it. I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't do that. When the elders and pastors tell me something, I assume they are right and I am wrong. Amen. And it would take God himself and the word to convince me otherwise. Do you know why? He put them in my life. I asked for them. I'm thankful for them. I have submitted myself to them precisely because I trust God's structure. This chapter tonight is about the one structure that God ordained, even though imperfect men were in it. And one that he never ordained, but everybody loved. Because it always gave them another choice. I think we need to examine our choices as a body. We're confident of good things for you. Many of the people we would like to be talking to about this did not do us the courtesy of showing up this evening. But I've noticed in 28 years in the ministry, that's how it always is, and that's why they make poor choices. You're benefited here to be warned in your soul tonight, and it will produce good fruit. Would you stand to your feet? Now that we're on our feet, Judah is going to read to you verses 21 and 22 to close out the historical account of Abijah's life. So, as we're about to read, and it's our finality, we're done for the evening. Justin and I want to pray for you, and we want to close on a few practical notes. We just mentioned those that are not here. You know who is? You! You are! So you're going to take what you have received from the Father and you're going to distribute it to your brothers. Amen? Amen. In our elevation of our priesthood that we've been working on, growing in, growing in our authority and our discernment, we're going to take notice from Deuteronomy 13. We are going to take the time to actually hear from the Lord and we're not going to elevate preferences, opinions, or feeling, dear God, above God's actual direction. And God will bless us as we align with Him. Who wouldn't mind putting John back on the screen for me? You guys remember where we closed Sunday. We had Jehu in a chariot and he extends his hand and he says, come up here with me. Essentially what we just closed on in John and are going to pray about is that first John one two is the fellowship that other men have that you know that you need. We've all experienced the Lord so had everyone in Samaria. It says so that you may so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. Listen, these are your fathers. We're more like brothers, maybe older brothers. I can unashamedly say that their fellowship is higher than yours. 
and that they're extending a hand just like Jehu in the chariot that you might join it and not stay where you are. God is threading a theme through these evenings because he wishes to elevate our way of life and he's not satisfied with us staying where we have been. As we do this, Justin's going to lead us with all of the fiber in your being. Don't let hours of preaching, hours of teaching be a waste. Elevate and grab hold of the fellowship, the arm, the hand that has been extended for your benefit. The Lord spoke to me while we were praying in the tabernacle for this message. And the Lord told me to trust in the structures God has placed in our lives. God's not divided about anything. He doesn't have two opinions. He has one way. He has a structure that He's placed you. He has a family He's put you in. He has a house that you're a part of. He has brothers that are around you. The Lord was speaking to me for you guys and for myself included that if we would just trust the structures that God placed us in, that we would grow and we would succeed. If we would just trust the structure He's put us in and the process that He's using, the people around us in our lives, if we would just trust that instead of our own opinions, we will grow. And I fully believe that. As I pray, I'm going to pray that we not be divided. Not be divided in heart on any subject. Not be divided with our brothers. But that we're going to have one place to go to. One place where God resides. So mighty God, Lord, I 